you know, sometimes it feels like we are, you know, born on this assembly line, and we just kind of, we're born, and you have, you know, a few weeks where everyone just thinks you're awesome, and then it feels like production begins, where you just kind of then have to move along. And so you are not long into preschool before you are being asked, well, what do you want to be, and what do you want to do, and how are you going to live, and, and what would you like? And so now we have all of these, and, and, and we get into grade school, and we begin uh, living our lives as grade school students, and uh, we're given all these visions of what needs to be, but then there's also like this crushing fear that if you don't do well enough, if you don't score well enough, if you don't have a good enough plan on what your life might look like and what it might be and how things might function, well, you really, you might not amount to much. So you're 12 having a panic attack because you're not sure what you're going to be when you grow up or you're not sure what you're going to do. Uh, and so you go, oh, golly, I, I guess I better start studying way more than I, than I did. And, and, you, and you better have straight teeth. So you got to go to the orthodontist because that's important. And you have to be athletic. You have to be involved in something or student government be because colleges aren't going to accept people who, who don't have a lot of things on their resume as high schoolers. They're not going to accept you if you aren't involved in extracurriculars and, and they're, not, they're just not going to be that interested in you. And all these other people, all your classmates, all your friends, well, think about all the stuff that they do. Think about all the times that they served. I, I th th think about the scores that they get on their ACT or SAT or whatever state you're in that that matters. You know, take it again if you need to take it again. And just take it again. Just keep taking it until you get the score that you need because that's the thing that's going to be your meal ticket. And then you got to go to college. And goodness, do you have a major yet? What's your major? What are you going to do with it? It's always the question. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. Eat it? I don't know. Like, what are you going to you know, you do with what you're learning? You got to do something with that. Now you're working. Hopefully you're doing whatever it was you went to college for, because if not, you're a failure, right? Like that's what we say. So now you have to kind of head down the career, the career world, and what's the next question that you're going to get? Oh, when are you going to get married? Uh, like, like, when are you going to get, when, 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 when are you going to have kids? When's that going to happen? And so it's just like, right, every five to seven years, like there's this new set of looming questions about the type of life that you're going to produce and the type of person that you're going to be, the kind of money that you're going to make. Then, right, then it gets real fun because, like, you hit your 30s and your 40s, and that's when the separation begins, right? All your friends you went to college with start making more money than you. They start performing better than you. Their kids seem to be way smarter than your kids. You don't know how that happened because you were way smarter than them. At least your parents told you. So you don't know what's going on there. And so now it just feels like you're caught not in a race, right? You're caught on a hamster wheel. And you just can't ever seem to, to produce enough. You can't ever seem to, to be enough. You can't ever seem to measure up enough. And you don't make enough. And, and, and your house isn't the right house, and your kids aren't in the right schools, and you haven't made the right decision, and your church is boring. That part's true. 
And then, you know, well, you got to be the kid that provides the grandkids that your parents are glad to talk to their friends about. So you have to be sure that you're doing stuff that can be put on Facebook or you're doing stuff that people can like and draw attention to. And so it never really stops and then you die. Somewhere between birth and all of those things, at the tail end of it, you die. And I I think many people are just stuck with the question of, man, was that worth it? Like, we lose sleep worrying about what's about to happen in our lives. We lose sleep, hours of it, right? We can start a support group. I'll be the leader. I lose sleep, too. We use calculators to find out if we'll have enough money in 40 years. We don't just live paycheck to paycheck, but we live just in this emotional state of worry, which leads to a constant state of exhaustion. Almost feels good to be worried. Makes you feel like you're serious about something. If you're worried about something, then people take you seriously. So, So it's good to be worried because worry shows that there are things in your life that matter. If you're not worried, you seem lazy. We need you to be serious. We need you to be concerned. We need you to be thinking about it. And if you actually, if you actually aren't concerned, well, there's something wrong with you. If you don't worry, if you don't lose sleep over it, then you're, then you're a bad dad. You've got to lose sleep over things. You've got to be bothered by things. And yet, for the Christian... We, we heard Hannah read the entire passage. This again goes to one of, one of the sayings you'll hear me say a lot, which is, Jesus says simple things. Not that, not that living them out is simple. Right? Simple is not simplistic. But many times, what Jesus says is clear. It's not like you've got to go, well, you know, maybe there's a Greek word clause in there that I could figure out, like, how he didn't mean the thing that he said. You know, may, maybe I could find a way to, to weasel my way out of what he said so that I feel better about the way I think about life. And today, it's really by God's grace, we get to a passage that is clear. It's simple. What Jesus says is simple. But yet living it out is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. It's hard to it's hard to be obedient to a command that is so clear and yet we live a life and we live in a world that wants you to be dissatisfied and anxious. So what causes us to worry and what does Jesus say to do about it? That's where we'll be today, Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. So it's a longer portion than what we've been going through. This comes right on the tail end, remember? We just talked about treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. And, well, what provides for you food and clothing and shelter and those necessities? What provides that for you? Right? It's going to be your money, your stuff, right? Like, like the thing you earn 
becomes the way you provide for these. So you can see how treasure in heaven and treasure on earth are going to be linked in these two statements about that and anxiety. He says, lay up, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. And then he's so bold as to say, and don't worry about your life. Like, but I need the treasure on earth to provide for the things of this life. Like, I got to go to the grocery store and buy food. It doesn't just show up. Maybe you do the, like, HEB door delivery. You still got to pay for it. So it might show up in one sense, but still gets paid for. It doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't, it doesn't just poof, and there it is. So we'll feel this tension because if our life is really set on laying up treasure in heaven, which would mean living by faith, right? Serving others, being concerned about the things of God's kingdom and not the things of this world. If that's really where our attention is going to be, and yet we have to live in order to do that, how do we hold these two worlds together? And that's the bridge that we see today and how Jesus teaches. So let's hear the passage again. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value of more value than they are and and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life and why are you anxious about clothing consider the lilies of the field how they grow they neither toil nor spin yet i tell you even solomon that great king solomon who had all his money and all this stuff even solomon was not arrayed, did not look like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven to make bricks, will he not much more clothe you? I added it to make bricks, but that's where it goes. Oh, you of little faith, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for Gentiles, those who don't know God. They, they seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And to reduce any anxiety about what might be coming, I'll just go ahead and and lay out the three points I'll make. Not all my sermons are three points, but it's funny because Courtney will usually stand over my shoulder after I'm finished my slides and edit them. Like, she's got, did I type this right? The Bible verses are just copied in, so that's fine. But then I have to, you know, really type things with my two fingers like this. And she goes, oh, do you need me to go edit your three sentences? I'm like, is it always three? It seems to be that way. It's just not, that's not the point, but I'll just say it's Trinitarian. So here we go. This is what you'll hear. First, we worry. When we, why do we worry? Well, we worry when we forget what life's about. That's what he says. Secondly, um, we'll note that, that worry flees. It leaves when we remember God's care for us. 
He uses this creation illustration to say, look here. Now, don't worry. Look here. Don't worry. And then finally, we're reminded where to look for that daily provision and perspective. It's kind of how he marches through. He declares something. He illustrates it. Then he says, okay, so now seek first. That's how he brings us through this passage. So we start with verse 25. We worry when we forget what life is about. We worry when we forget what life is about. This comes right after the reminder that we can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in money, so therefore don't worry. The, the assumption then would be that if you're serving God, you don't worry. Right? You can't serve God in money, so just so don't worry. Because, because God already knows you can't serve God in money, so put your attention in the right place. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't make money your focus. That's what he says prior to this. Because if it is, you'll always be worried about what's going to happen. You'll always be worried about, do you have enough? Do you not have enough? Do you need more? How are you going to get it? What are you going to do for it? And so now, again, you live in that emotion. Emotionally, you live day to day, paycheck to paycheck, right? Like, he's kind of like, oh, are we going to have it? 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 Now, I'm going to make a comment first because I think this is something that can make our brains go wacky. There are many situations in a fallen world that are difficult to diagnose. And, and what I mean by that is that, that there, there are always the consequences of sin that are all around us. Okay? Hunger, that's a real thing. People don't have enough food, and that Christians don't have enough food. The selfishness that leads to the hoarding of resources, it's a real thing. Poverty is a real thing. Food insecurity is a real thing. Famines are a real thing. And so... We can't always assume, because we have to remember that the world that we're in is fallen and sin affects everything in different ways. We can't always assume that lack of provision equals lack of faith, nor can we assume that provision equals faithfulness, right? We so it goes both ways. If we see a brother or sister who, who's struggling in some way, we can't go, oh, well, you're just not faithful enough. You must be praying wrong. You must be thinking wrong. Because clearly, if you were more faithful, you would be fine. And nor do we look at somebody who has things and go, oh, God's really blessed them because they are faithful. That is a deceptive way to diagnose what's going on. And so we have to remember that, right? That we have to kind of apply that, that view of sin understanding that it affects everything, that it's pervasive in all the things that it affects. I mean, even remember in the first missionary journey, not in the first missionary journey, I'm sorry, but there was a famine in Jerusalem that affected the Jerusalem church, and Paul's ministry, for a big part of it, was going around and raising money from churches that weren't having the famine to go bring the money back to the Jerusalem church. And he wasn't writing the Jerusalem church to go, you guys need to believe better. Right? They were recognizing the fallen world, there's a famine. So what can we do about it? This passage is about the perspective and the way living as citizens 
who are of a different kingdom should affect what we do day in and day out. If we belong to God, we approach even today's resources differently. Remember, Jesus just taught in, uh, us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He taught us to depend on God for our daily provision. So reading this passage is not going to address every ethical situation and cultural nuance that might show up situation to situation, but it is going to follow the theme that Jesus has been teaching in this entire time, which is you belong as disciples of Jesus, you belong to a different kingdom. That kingdom has different values. And worry doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Because it neglects to realize and recognize the loving care and concern of a heavenly father. It neglects to realize the, recognize that, that he is your provider and that there are things more significant than just food and clothing. That's what he says there. The reason that we worry when we forget life is about is because what we've left is that there's something bigger going on. That's his question. Is, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Are you really just living day to day? Is, is your perspective on life that you need to earn and get and keep and acquire as much as you possibly can so that you can eat and vacation and travel and enjoy life however you want? Isn't there more? Isn't there more? Or, or really, is, is, are we so, is our view of life so narrow and so shallow that we think that so long as um, I have food and clothing, like, that's all that matters. That's all that matters eternally. That's it. I'm good. I'm not talking about contentment here because Paul will address that. Hey, if we have food and clothing, we'll, we'll be content with that. We don't need more than that, which does tie into the idea a little bit, doesn't it? But if we live in such a way that we just think, I have to have clothing and I have to have food, and that's really it, then we're missing what else is going on. What's the implication is that when you think that life is all about your body, your clothing, your food, your needs, and you have fundamentally misunderstood God's kindness to you, and... And that we're created in his image. That we have enormous value because we're in God's image. We are God's creation. Life is more than just these things. And it does not mean that we should not be fed. Remember, Jesus feeds 5,000. He has compassion on people who are hungry. He's not like, oh, I'm sorry, good luck. After his resurrection, I love this little image, we don't often think about it, but after his resurrection in the Gospel of John, Jesus is cooking breakfast for the disciples. Now that breakfast is fish, and that's not really what I would eat for breakfast, but he's on the shore, and he cooks for them. Well, they're out in the boat fishing, going, I don't know what's going to happen, we just kind of gave away three years of our life, and what does he do but cooks breakfast for his disciples who don't even know that he is still around at that point doing like, like he's just he cooks for them they've moved on and he's cooking breakfast what this means is that food is not the end game clothing is not the end game that's not what it's all about we do pray for our daily bread right that's that's one thing that that we're told to pray by jesus to pray give us a day of daily bread but we're also told to pray 
your kingdom come, your will be done. That the first part of that prayer is all attention on God and what God is doing and how we can align ourselves to it. And so if we only focus on the back end of how he teaches us to pray, then we're only focused on things that we think matter right here and right now. That first half of the prayer is just aligning. May your name be holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. So when we take our eyes off of God, when we neglect to look at him and remember him and his care for us, even perhaps if the world, even unfortunately sometimes if the church has abandoned us, or so it feels, then we start to sink like Peter did when he's walking on water and he gets freaked out by the wind and the waves that are around him and he begins to sink. Because he's no longer looking at his Lord, no longer staring at him and letting God be the one where his attention is, but instead he's looking at his environment and he becomes scared and he begins to sink. When we're only looking at our closets and our bank accounts and our pantries, then we have fixed our gaze inappropriately. And we've assumed that success is more of those More of those things means we're doing okay. But life is about the Lord, and we must constantly remind ourselves of these truths because when we worry, we forget what life is about. Now, I don't know if you do this. I I, I don't do it well either sometimes, but have you ever connected, you ever connected your own worry with your view of God? And, And what I mean by that is that what's on the other side of that worry? Perhaps you're here this morning or you're maybe listening later in the week. Hello to all who are listening, you know, on Tuesday. And you've only known anxiety. It's really what you've known. And the varying levels of intensity that may come from it. You've never had peace. You've always been concerned. And it's only being magnified through your family because, right, that just worries contagious. Anxiety is contagious. You see people worried. We get worried. And my kids know, and your kids probably know, my kids know when something's up in my head because they tell me I'm acting funny. They know. So I'll just say this, because if if all we've known is worry, perhaps we haven't known the Lord. And that's not to say if you know the Lord, you will never worry. Because, again, we wander, we forget. Our flesh is crying out for security in this world. And so we distort what we think we need so that we might grab a hold of it. But I can say this, that the only chance we have at removing worry in an enduring fashion is to focus on Jesus. Because through Him our biggest obstacle is removed. And that obstacle is not our need for food. It is actually our need for forgiveness. The biggest obstacle, the biggest hurdle, is not what's happening today. It's what do I do with me? What do I do with me? I could have a full belly and still be broken. I could be well-clothed and warm and still 
have this nagging suspicion that there's something not right with me. The only way that hurdle is removed is, is by confessing our sin and our need for Jesus and recognizing the sacrifice that he has done to remove that. <clears throat> and when that is removed and our relationship with our Heavenly Father is, is brought into its right standing, then we can bring these other sub-worries freely. We can bring these anxieties because they'll still happen, won't they? But, but when we don't think life is all about here and now, that's actually when the anxiety ratchets up. Because then we have to get really serious about how we're living so that we can be sure that we're getting through each day with clothes and food and all of these earthly needs always met all the time. With the offense of our sin removed by Jesus... We can learn obedience in the hard moments because we can look to him and go, oh, he did that. I mean, he has said this, right, that, that foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. His whole point was, you know, I'm, I'm day to day on this thing, with where I might sleep or where I might be. So if you want to follow me, you're going to have the same thing. You might not know what comes. But do you know who your Heavenly Father is? If you know that, then you'll be all right. Now, he tells us why we worry. We worry when we take our eyes off God and we focus too much on this world and the needs that show up only in this world. Not the eternal considerations, not the internal concerns, but like, what's going on right now? But Jesus then illustrates this in a moment by, by bringing us outside and going, just look around. Look around. And that worry leaves when we remember God's care for us. It flees when we remember God's care for us. He's going to give two illustrations. One is about food, and one is about clothing or adornment. And he uses both of these illustrations from creation. Now, remember what we said earlier, that, that, that a fallen world is full of sin and selfishness, that even birds can be hungry, and flowers that are set out in the, you know, Texas sun in June aren't going to last long. We, we understand that. We understand that there is a, this is just how the world is. But again, he's saying, look, just look at the amount of care God gives to his creation, and aren't you more valuable? That's what he's about to do. And he's teaching outside, which helps. But I'm like, look at the birds. You're like, what birds? This is a room with light bulbs. Well, look at the light bulbs. They have electric, electrical current. Like, I couldn't say it like that. So this is his teaching. Look at the birds of the air. He's probably pointing to them. Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I think it's a hard one for us sometimes. We don't, we don't actually view ourselves as more valuable than the creation. But Jesus tells you that you are. Are you not of more value than a bird? Birds aren't created in God's image. You're created in God's image. 
flowers aren't created in God's image. You were created in God's image. So he goes, are, are you not more value than they? And then he brings this little rebuke. So, so which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? That's a rather logical argument, isn't it? You don't have to be a Christian to even make that argument. Right? I, I'm sure there are non-Christians all around who would say the same thing. Can you actually gain anything by being worried? They might not have the backing of what else is going on here. They just know, reasonably, you're not getting anything from this other than losing sleep. So why do it? So he uses this, as uh, Dr. Pennington calls it, he has a commentary I've been using, but a lesser to greater argument. And Jesus does this several times, but he'll say, look at the birds, aren't you more valuable? Right, it goes lesser, look how God cares for the lesser, now look at you. He'll do the same thing with flowers. And then he brings a rebuke, right? So it's lesser, greater, rebuke. <laughs> the lesser is, look at the birds, you're more valuable. You can't add a day to your life by being worried. You're just robbing today of joy is really what you're doing. Because you really can't be worried and present. You can't be worried and carefree. You can't be worried and engage. If you show up here, you can't be worried and worship. Because you're only going to wonder what's going on outside of here. That worry is just this static. It stays. Never leaves. And Jesus addresses, goes right to the heart, goes, can you add a single thing to your life by being worried? Anything? Can you add a single thing? Then he goes to the clothing. Why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. Here they are. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They just grow. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Look at just the, the, the beauty of a flower. Think about the amount of maybe awe that you get when you can just look and go, how did this happen? How did this get here? Just look at that. And even Solomon was not arrayed like that. That there's beauty in the complexity of a flower. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, or if you're like me, gets mowed over. Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you little faith. Which again goes back to worry, which you can see a contrast now, right? Take our eyes off God. We're not trusting in Him. What happens? Worry increases because we've lost the source that holds us steady. So then He goes to the rebuke. So don't be anxious saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Gentiles seek after these things. That's the rebuke. You're living like somebody else, you're living like people who don't know me. You don't need to live like people who don't know me. They seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Remember when Jesus was instructing us on prayer, and he says, you don't have to be a crazy babbler in your prayers. You don't have to go on and on and on and on. What's his reason for that? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He'll take care of you. Now, again, I can speak to the complexity of this because let's just assume for a moment, and this is why, like, 
layers of sin can confuse how we read passages. Let's say for a moment that you are riding the coattails of about 50 bad decisions. Okay? And what I mean by that is this. Uh, You've racked up credit card debt galore. You're way over levered in your house. You're buying a, you bought a house that's much more expensive than you can afford. Somehow you got in. You expect a certain standard of living in the cars that you drive and the places that you go and the food that you're going to eat. And so all of a sudden you are just maxed in every part of life. In that moment, I don't think just trusting God is the next best move. We'll just trust God. He'll provide for all those things. Well, not if the decision himself was built and fostered in a furnace of sinfulness and lack of faith. The next best move to actually begin to trust God to provide for us is repentance for running way out far ahead of what you needed in the first place. It's, it's to ask forgiveness for getting to a position where you lived in such a way that you thought this world was what mattered. And that you might have to go through a painful process of selling and removing and reducing and downsizing to actually get to a spot where all that anxiety has now gone. Because our sin makes us anxious too, doesn't it? It makes us anxious too. So that's why I say when we read these passages and we see the illustration between birds and days or uh, flowers and the Gentiles, like when, when we see those things, we see that how Jesus teaches, remember that we might be living in such a way that we are way overextended in how we live. In that moment in time, the solution isn't just trust. Oh, it'll be fine. Just trust God that, you know, somebody's going to write you a $400,000 check to get out of it. No. At that point in time, the solution is get out of it. Get out of it. Because you'll never, you'll never get to this anxietyless mind that can focus on the Lord if all of your attention is maximizing all the things and treasures that you have. You have to see how these things work together. If we're storing ourselves up treasures on earth, then we're likely increasing our anxiety as well. That these things move together. Whereas if our concern is treasures in heaven, then we're not as concerned about things of this earth. And then what starts to happen? We're not concerned about upgrading, increasing, expanding, showing off. But you know, people who sell you a car, what do they they ask you, right? How much can you afford to pay? That's what they want to know. Like I I don't know of a person who's like, how little can you afford? That's what I'll sell you. What is your bottom dollar? I'll do that. I mean, even, even I, have a, I have a good buddy. Oh, yeah, I hope he's not listening. No, we joke about it. He's, he's, my, he, he's written uh, one, two, three. He's done three of my home loans and a refinance of our current house. I like, guess what he's done. I know him. I'll joke with him. But he's always like, oh, you just, just go ahead and get the free money. Like, go ahead. Because in his world, like, you, just, you, just, you just do it. I have to be like, hey, no, like, I'm not as, like, that's not my approach right now. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be stressed. I don't want to be stressed. I don't want to get it because I can. I don't care that I'm pre-qualified. Like, I'm just going to stress out in three years when my loan's been sold five times 
and I don't know which bank I'm paying anymore, and that person doesn't know my name, and they're still going to come calling. Like, that's just not a fun place to be. So we have to remember that there are other virtues even that affect how we walk with the Lord, right? Contentment, sacrifice, generosity, and all of these things affect how we approach what we're reading here. It's not just, hey, God's going to provide for how, whatever standard of living you set for yourself. Because whatever standard of living you set for yourself is more than likely storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. I know me, and so that helps me know you a little bit, right? That we like to show off. We like to get stuff. We like to gain, even if we don't need it. And also think about saving. We talked about this last week. We want to talk about it more this week. Remember when, when God uses Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been forgotten in prison after he had given an interpretation of a good dream. Two years go by. He forgets. Pharaoh's having dreams. Pharaoh's freaking out. Joseph interprets the dreams. He goes, you're going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Well, what do they do? We talked about this last week. What do they do? They take the seven years of plenty save up so that when the seven years of famine come, they have food. That was godly insight given to Joseph, both to provide in that moment, but also, also to preserve the nation that he had promised would be the nation that would show God's goodness to the world. By giving Joseph, the ability in that moment to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and creating a plan that allowed for them to save and store and then give when it was needed, what was happening? Joseph became second in command in Egypt. So Genesis ends on a high note. Exodus brings us down, right? Like and then there arose over Egypt a king who did not know Pharaoh. So God uses that. And we talked about this last week, that, that, that if you are living below your means, I would say we should strive to do. If you're living below your means, then you are able to save for that inevitable time when no one wants to pay you for your services anymore. Right? Like, like how we function in this world and how our economics work is there will come times when you're going to have to pay for future living, maybe even for decades, without a job. Well, if you're not now living in such a way that you can save for that time. And it's not to say, like, that time might not come. You Truly, you might die and never spend a penny of it. That could totally happen. And I, I, I think that's kind of cool, because if that does happen, well, then guess who gets to be generous with what you've saved? Your kids, right? Like, they get to be generous because you've been forward-thinking and how you're providing you don't leave them shackled with, golly, how are we going to figure all this stuff out? But they're able to go, what could we do? Who could we bless? How could we serve with, with this? Now, this is a hard thing because it's about the heart, right? That I can't tell with your heart that, that your way of life in this moment is because you're freaked out or fearful about what's going to come or if you're faithful. That those moments only come by just talking 
Because there are some people who would try and live way below their means and save for whatever contingency that might exist because they do not trust. They don't trust. That's the hard thing in diagnosing a heart is that the Lord knows the heart. You have to go to the Lord and go, am I living here in faith? Or am I, am I being out of bounds? Am I overlevered? Am I unconcerned? This part's true. Both of these illustrations... God provides for his world. Do you not think he would provide for you? Do you not think he'd provide for you? Do you not think he's concerned about you? Do you not think he's interested in how to care, or how to meet these needs? But if you look at verses 31 and 32... And he says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. When he does this, that becomes, when we can live, when Genesis Community Church can live like that, it becomes incredibly evangelistic. Meaning a worry-free disposition is rather attractive in a world that teaches you to worry I'll give you an example. I've talked to numerous people throughout the pandemic. They've lost jobs. They've changed jobs. They're looking for jobs. Or, for example, they have jobs that employ a good number of people. And now when you employ a good number of people, right, that your success is their success, and their success is your success. And so you're kind of stuck in this spot where you go, well, I, I, I got I to gotta be sure I can do what I need because I got to hit payroll, and I don't want these people to lose their jobs. But one example comes to mind, a dear brother who runs a business, has daily bills, a sizable payroll, an affected industry, and no worldly concern. At any time we have spoken, he's like, the Lord has this. Right? Now we're coming up on a year, aren't we, of the Lord has this. It's cool in like two weeks. Like we can all be on two weeks. Oh, God's on it. You also kind of know like the tax return refunds coming. God's on it. God's got it. But also if he doesn't, that's often how we live. But a year in, to still be saying, I'm not concerned. It's the Lord's. And I look forward to seeing how he'll provide. Right? When you hear somebody say that, it's like a balm. It really is. You just go, oh, my gosh. I need to hear that. I need to hear you say it. You need to hear me say it. I don't need to reproduce worry. I need to reproduce faith. When I hear somebody else trusting the Lord in a situation that far exceeds my own situation, I go, oh my gosh, I could do that. I could do that. I can trust him. I can say that he's good. I can realize his provision. I cannot be worried. And then all of a sudden, what happens, right? We look into God together. That's verses 33 and 34. We look to God for our daily provision and perspective. Look to God, daily provision and the right perspective. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first, look at it, look to it. Find your identity in it. All these things will be added to you. A ham sandwich isn't as good as a steak dinner, but a ham sandwich is food. Right? Again, we get bugged. We go, well, it's not this, though. I, I didn't know there was a certain standard we demanded God would, would meet. 
before we would be satisfied with his provision. Is that, that the new rule? God has to do certain things for us before we think they're okay and they have to hit certain metrics? Like, that's, right? You may not live in the house you want. And you may not drive the car you want. And you may not have the job you want. But are your needs met? If that's true, then aren't, aren't, aren't you being provided for by your Heavenly Father? And your shirt has a hole in it. That's okay. And you haven't been able to upgrade your phone. That's okay. You'll be okay. Right? The Lord is not obsessing in heaven about how you don't have a new phone. Jesus teaches us to pray earlier in Matthew chapter 6. And now he's showing us how to live out that prayer in a moment. This is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't just, just give us good luck. He's not like, good luck, buddy. But seek first is a matter of priority. Is life really about God and his kingdom? If so, then why do I need to worry? When your day starts, do you remind yourself of the first things? Are you surrendering your day and your life to the Lord and reminding yourself of God's power and provision in your life? Are you seeking first? Every day you need it. Every day. And I'd also say this, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, is that with whatever today has before you, do it faithfully. And James, Jesus' half-brother, doesn't he say, like, he's not mad that you plan, he's mad that you plan without considering the Lord. That was what we went through last year. So he, he gets frustra- frustrated with the arrogance of, oh, we're going to live our life for the next year like this gets frustrated with that. He goes, no, instead you should say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So yeah, keep your hand to the plow. Work hard at what God has put before you. Absolutely. If you need work, find work. Do Put that energy in. Do that. Trust the Lord. Day by day. Every day you get up and you seek God, you're surrendering your rights, rights again. You work hard to the Lord, whatever he has before you. You don't sit around and just wait. And then also this for us. If God has provided for you extra, use it to meet the needs of others. That sometimes the provision is you. It's you. 1 John 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We forget this part, that the church can be God's provision for our needs. We can be that. You need a place to stay? I have a place you can stay. You need food? I have food. You need clothing? I have clothing. We're the first line of defense for each other. And that, that's when we move to 
my relationship with God only affects me to my relationship with God affects us. It affects us. That God has put people here in the midst of our church family who can help one another, care for one another, serve one another. That some people can earn more, and those people, at least in amounts, can give more. And in many instances, should. Not talking percentages or anything like that, but man, if you make more, I hope you can give more. Absolutely hope that. Of course I hope that. And so God has given us one another to help meet the need. Just as thoroughly in keeping with the entire teaching of the New Testament. And as many as had need. That's what it says. And as many as there were needs, they would sell what they had and they would provide for one another. And so even then, we can help be, by God's grace, the one who helps reduce the anxiety in the life of our brother and sister. We live out faithfully what God has done for us, and we live faithfully in relationship with our brother or sister, that we can actually help be this. We can help be an anxiety reducer. We don't just look at them and go, good luck, buddy. Right? That's what John here, and that's what James condemns. When you see someone who has needs, and you just say, I'll pray for you from across the room. That must be hard. Rather than care for them. Consider Jesus. He lived a life daily dependent on his Father's grace, even food and shelter. And he knew that God's word was the nourishment for our souls, not just for our bodies. And even in suffering, he was not fearful for his life. Every day, every moment is an opportunity for us to exhibit fear or faith. And we don't need to worry about tomorrow or 18 years from now or 35 years from now because God provides for us in the moment what we need. And a church that trusts him replaces worry with worship because our minds and our hearts are free to lift up his name.